They both want more out of their life. They both know that their life is not necessarily what they want it to be. And, and, and they both go at trying to fix that by doing two very different things. <laughs> podcast listeners and welcome back to No Script, an unscripted conversation about theater's best scripts. I am Jackson Nikolai. I am Jacob Mann Christensen. And we are back again this fine Monday or whatever day you are listening to this you podcast. You did it this time. Hey. Usually I'm the one that does that. <laughs> I walked my way it into it It could be any day of the week, No Script yeah. listeners. You are not confined to Mondays. Or to time. <laughs> you, could, you could listen to this whenever you want. To the listeners uh, in the year 2050. Yeah. You live in a s- desolate, barren planet by now, I'm sure. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> thanks for bartering that, that fuel cell to listen to our podcast. Yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, we are going to be talking about a new playwright for us in the context of this podcast, but also for me. This is the first play I've ever read by this playwright. It is Kirsten Greenidge's play Milk Like Sugar. Yeah, absolutely. This is a really exciting thing to come across a brand new body of work. I've, I like Jack said, I've never even heard of this playwright, but uh, you know, as we do our looking to try to see what are the plays that we want to talk about, we want to make sure that we have a really broad range of the types of literature we're encountering. And so, uh, to to bring in a brand new playwright to both of us is a really exciting thing. And honestly, doesn't happen very often. Right? Uh, either Jackson or I have often encountered at least a play right in some form um but this one is brand new to us so we're really excited yeah it's it's a fairly new one too we'll get to that when we contextualize it but yeah it's it's in the fairly new echelon of plays that have been produced so so yeah i'm excited to both both through this play and in this conversation but then also in the future continue to include these newer plays as they come out and if you want to be part of the future of No Script Podcast, then you're going to want to head on over to patreon.com slash Podcast Again, and the URL is really important because it's a little hard to find us without the URL. Patreon.com slash Podcast. That's where you find us. That's where you become a supporter of the show. We know some of you have gone over there and done that, and we're so excited by the support. So thank you all very much for contributing to the work that we're doing. We love what we do. It's a pack project. We're thrilled to do it week to week, but man, is it not free. I wish it were much more free than it was, <laughs> but it is not free to do. There is monetary investment on both of our parts, as well as just a significant time investment. So we'd love for you to think about becoming a supporter of the show for as little as a dollar a month. A dollar a month, you can support the work that we're doing, and that really, really, really does help. So please consider heading on over there. Once you become a patron, you get access to uh, patron-only posts and and certain things like that that are released over on that Patreon page. So please head on over there and check us out there, patreon.com slash noscriptpodcast. Yes, head on over there and we will see you over there. Like Jacob said, it just that $1 amount helps us out so much. So thank you to everyone who's gone over and we will see you over on patreon.com slash no script podcast. 
Now, and now we are excited <laughs> also before we talk about the script because oh, yeah. this is our last week of regular programming for a little while. Not that we are stopping, but that we are moving into one of our themed months. All of our seasons so far, we've had a different month of scripts that surround us certain subject rather than just trying to do our diverse array of programming we instead focus in on one subject or something for a month our first season we did musicals our second season we did four plays by arthur miller and in this third season we are doing magic month four plays that involve magic in some capacity or supernatural power in some capacity Yeah, this was one that was kind of suggested to us from some of our listeners out there. So it's always fun to be able to engage in that way. And and yeah, we're doing Magic Month. So we release the uh, we'll release a post of all the scripts uh, probably this coming week. But uh, for those of you who listened last week, this will be old news to you. But we are doing A Midsummer's Night's Dream by Shakespeare, Prelude to a Kiss by Craig Lucas. Into the Woods by Stephen Sondheim and Angels in America by Tony Kushner. So if you want to read ahead and kind of get in on on uh, on being up to date on the script that we're talking about, you can go ahead and schedule your lives around our podcast. Thank you very much. Wow, that'd be awesome. And, and <laughs> it's four very different plays, which we're excited about. All of them approach magic or supernatural elements really differently. So I think it's going to be a really cool month of conversation as we head into that. So that will be October. So this is your last week of regular old No Script podcasts for a month, as in October we hit uh, every week we'll be discussing a play about magic. So we're excited about that. But for now, back to the script. Back to the script. This play, Milk Like Sugar by Kirsten Greenidge, is, uh, it was a play produced in 2011. So as I mentioned before, a fairly recent script. It was produced at La Jolla Theater out in California. Um, it's a seven-hander, and uh, amongst the names that I see in both the uh, original production and the New York production is Tonya Pinkins, who uh, some of you may know from Gotham if you watch the TV series, and and she, she has a, a pretty long list of shows on uh, IMDb, so you can definitely, you would recognize her if you saw any of the footage, which there and is And she uh, was some. really, really highly lauded for her performance in this, in this show. She was really spectacular, so I understand. Yeah. Won an Obie Award for it, I believe. Um, so yeah, uh, yeah. So this play uh, then went on to New York in 2011 uh, at the Peter J. Sharp Theater. Uh, I'm sorry, the play won Obie Awards, the 2012 Obie Awards, and uh, Tonya Pinkins won Outstanding Featured Actress, a Lucy Lucille Lortel Award for it. So yeah, it it, uh, it uh, performed those uh, pretty kind of a, a, fl- a flash as far as its its length of time on stage, but right from California straight to Broadway uh, and New York area or off-Broadway at the, yeah, at the Peter J. Sharp Theater. So, so yeah, this is a, a very recent play dealing with some pretty current uh, issues. So yeah, I'm excited to get to jump in. it's been picked up and really well produced on the regional theater scene. Since its stay in New York, it's been produced coast to coast at regional theaters and has enjoyed a really healthy life there. So it's always great to hop onto those scripts. Uh, and a play that reminds me of that is The Roommate. You know, it had those mm, initial yeah. productions and then it has been picked up and championed across the, the regional theater scene. So it's fun to come back to scripts like that. In terms of its story, it's fairly simple. It takes takes place over a few days except for one scene briefly at the end and it is about a trio of high school girls Annie, Talisha and Margie 
in the initial scene, these three girls are at a tattoo parlor celebrating Annie's 16th birthday. Margie of this trio is already pregnant. And in their ensuing conversation, the three girls, especially Annie and Talisha, make a, what amounts to a pregnancy pact where they agree that by the end of the week, they're going to be pregnant. Um, and and then, then all three of them are going to be uh, high school mothers together. Uh, some of why, the, I, we'll have to just talk about why they decide to do that. That's <laughs> right, probably right. too much to go into right now. But the rest of the play really follows without much uh, question on on anybody else's behalf that Annie is the central character through the rest of the script. Coming out of the first scene, you might wonder wh- which of these girls am I really going to follow, but it is Annie's play from there on out, uh, part and parcel. And the play is about her grappling with this decision. Does she really want to get pregnant and be a mother at this point in her life? And she encounters various people. The other characters in the show are Antoine, who's the tattoo artist. Uh, one of the things that happens to her Annie over the course of the play is her tattoo that she gets in the initial scene grows. It's a tattoo of a a little flame that grows throughout the script. She keeps going back to get it expanded. Malik, who is the boy that she is initially uh, planning to be the father of this child that she wants to conceive. Myrna, who is Annie's mother. And uh, Myrna was a high school, or it might even be younger, I think they say junior high, mother of Annie. So she was a young mother herself, and she's stuck in kind of a dead-end cleaning job. Um, And so she has some commentary to make. And then Kira, who is a peer of these high school girls and who is... Uh, very different. She she's she spouses a lot of religion, um, and, and in a kind of a touching, tender way. Maybe different than it being a caustic religion. It seems sort of gentle and loving, and and so all these other characters who aren't the two friends of Annie's kind of provide different insights for Annie about this decision, different points of view about what is Annie going to ultimately decide to do with her life by the end of this play. So in a lot of ways, this is a coming-of-age story. A young high school person is faced with a crucial decision that is going to change the course of their life one way or the other, no matter what happens by the end of the play. And the the play follows this mystery. What is going to happen to this person through the course of her life? And along the way, we meet all of these other people's lives because some of them are are less than helpful to Annie in this in this question for her. Some of them are kind of interested in their own lives a lot more and end up talking to Annie about them. Uh, her her mom has a really unique story. Um, we we learn a lot about Malik and Kira through their interactions with Annie. Um, it it kind of feels like this this experience of, you know, whatever grade that is, sophomore year of high school, you, you're walking through meeting people, knowing people and learning more story. It's just all compacted in this beautiful little play. Interestingly, I was reading some reviews in preparation for recording, and the New York Times review talked about, of course, how beautiful and touching so much of the story is and how raw and real it feels. But that reviewer said of the the pact made by these three girls at the beginning of the show that it didn't quite ring true for this reviewer, that Annie being so bright and so aware and so cognizant of what's going on around her and having had a mother who was herself a young teenage mother and knows the consequences of that, why would Annie ever agree or even, ultimately Annie's the one who suggests this pact. 
It's not something that's forced on her at the beginning of the show. Across the show, she becomes more reluctant and the peer pressure starts up pretty hardcore. But initially, this is Annie's idea. And... The, the this particular reviewer felt like that was that didn't quite ring true for them. I'm interested in what you think of that, Jackson. Yeah, I mean, uh, I mean, it's it's worth noting at the start of this podcast that all of this is outside of my realm of experience. So <laughs> <laughs> this no, is all really, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so this uh, take all of my opinions on this with a, a grain of salt, knowing that it's just my dramatic opinion. And <laughs> so, so let's go. Let's start there. Yeah, I, I, I think all, that's an important point for the whole conversation, right? Is of yeah. course we're discussing this as a work of literature. Uh, not as a specific piece of social commentary. The the things that we say about the characters and their decisions and the judgments that we make about their decisions <laughs> purely exist in the context of the story that we're that we're talking through. <laughs> yes. So so that being said, I'll I'll dive in. Um, I I think that I, some of that reviewer's remarks ring true. Of the trio, she seems to be the one who would, uh, would, uh, it, it makes the least sense for her to suggest it. But I think that's only true because of our perspective at the end of the play. I think this group of friends at the beginning, you start this play and, uh, and, and the first scene is them in this tattoo parlor and they're just, they're, they're, they're flashing back and forth between each other. They're talking about, uh, this pact that they're forming. They're all getting texts all the time, which is a cool facet of this play that we'll get into eventually. And it, I mean, it seems like buying into these close relationships would be a good thing. And what's the buy-in at this point that Margie is pregnant? Well, let's all let's all buy into each other and have have kids together and all have the same the one of the big things they negotiate over is having the same shower for their for their baby showers so like they need to throw a party together so that they can all have their baby showers and get all this cool stuff that comes with having a baby so uh so so that like excitement that i get like the excitement of well we're all doing this thing together maybe i'll jump in and and, and we should all promise to do it together right yeah let's do it together it's worth noting that the the lore around the script is that Kirsten Greenidge, she based at least the initial concept for this show on a true event that happened in 2008. Actually, a false event, a true rumor about something that happened in 2008, which was that there was a high number of high school pregnancies occurring at this high school in Boston. And the rumor was that it, at, at its core, was a pact among the girls at this school to get pregnant. And that ended up blowing up and not being true at all. Um, but supposedly that was the genesis of the idea for the beginning of this play. So in some level, this is rooted in a, a cultural idea or phenomenon that we, at least in 2011, might have been aware of. Additionally, I'm not as put off as that reviewer was by by the decision to make this pregnancy pact. First of all, I'm willing to accept it as just the rules of the play in order to set up the plot and the story, in order to follow Annie through this decision point in her life, she has to be willing to make the decision at the beginning. And so I'm willing to accept that front up. Also, the first scene of this play, I think, is so masterfully sets up why Annie would ever agree to something like this in the beginning. And it's that the first scene is Annie's birthday. And Jackson, what's she waiting for? That whole scene, she's waiting for something to come through that doesn't come through. 
Well, are you talking about the tattoo or the date that evening? <laughs> Neither. The phone call from her mother. Oh, yeah. Time and time again, she's getting texts and calls, and all everybody comments on it. Is that your mom? Is that your mom? Because it's her birthday. Her mom should call her. And again and again and again, it's not her mother. And then that Annie would say, you know, I we, we learn through the course of the play that Annie and her mother have a really tense relationship, that her mother is not there for her, is not the kind of caretaker Annie wants or needs. And so... Annie feeling rejected by her mother on her birthday, that her mother has no special care for her, that she feels alone as a result of that, and as as you so astutely commented, finds this connection point with her friends. I think that that makes a lot of sense to me. This is what Annie says uh, as they're discussing this. So Annie brings it up. She says, maybe you and me should hit ourselves up with some of the baby juice like Margie here. And Talisha initially balks at the idea. And so to justify it, Annie says, yeah, Yo, we won't need moms no more if we each have tiny little babies made just for us, right? Yeah. Yeah, that's that's a good point. I, I like that you drew attention to that because it, it, it isn't just that, you know, the, it's not just this thing they're getting swept up in. This play on numerous scenes kind of makes the argument of wouldn't it be great if if we had one thing that just loved us completely and that we can then love back? There's a lot of kind of disillusionment that happens in this play for some of them, but specifically for Annie, Myrna, her, her, her mother kind of disillusions some of the the thoughts that she has around the babies, uh, around a baby, like you just get to dress it up all the time and it's always around. And Mirna's like, you're changing diapers every two hours. But <laughs> yeah, well, but, and, and this kind of um, this sense of the, the, you know, our babies will love us and it'll be sort of this special thing for us becomes the core of Talisha's argument over the course of the play. As Annie becomes more and more reluctant to make this call, Talisha's arguments become such. So Annie is, this is a scene later on in the play annie's talking about how she has other things that she wants to do for example ride in a boat before she becomes a mother and talisha says what does that mean more i don't give a crap about boats what oh i wish i'd say i'm gonna swear by the way uh (laughs) i don't give a crap about boats what else the fuck i gonna more shit because you and me could use a little baby love for us right now if you ask me what else we got yeah yeah, that that line of reasoning that makes a lot of sense to me. Uh, as far as 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 far as the reason why they get into it in the first place, what's the reason that you? So you just read that line about wanting more and about uh, you you mentioned specifically riding on a boat. There's quite a bit of language around that in this play. Yeah, where does that begin to stem from? Where does where does uh where does Annie uh, start to get that information? Because she doesn't start at the beginning of the play wanting those things. She wants to enter into this baby pact with her friends. Right. So it, this pr- this kind of sense that there might be more to life. It really comes at her from all of the other four characters in the play. Annie and these two friends exist in this. It's kind of a closed world. Uh, where their garbled opinions and misunderstandings 
are just kind of inform bad decision making between the three of them over and over and over and over and over again. And then when they break out of this trio and interact with other parts of the world, they they gain a little more information than they have when it's just the three of them. And I actually think that happens to all three of the girls, but we see it most obviously with Annie. So right away, they make this pact in scene one. Scene two, and we say scenes, one of the features of the script is that they're not delineated. It runs smoothly from beginning to end. So it's just the stage directions just say that the stage changes to an, another location uh, but so what we might call scene two uh, is is annie up on in this park with malik and she's there to have sex with him i mean she's there to get pregnant based on this pregnancy pack and malik right away begins to kind of broaden her horizons he's not interested in just the open kind of aggressive seduction that she's trying to do <laughs> to get it and and he instead is is he he's brought her out to this park because he wants to show her the sky and he thinks how beautiful the sky is and it's going to be romantic and it's special for him. He has a special love for the stars and he's hoping that it'll be special for her. And so right away she comes across somebody who messes with the expectations. The expectations of these three teenage girls is that, well, you're going to be able to get it from Malik super easy. Just go, and He likes you. Just go get, get it tonight. Go get pregnant tonight. It'll be super easy. It's your birthday, right? And she immediately <laughs> encounters something totally different than that. Yeah, yeah. The the expectation is completely flipped. They they as as you said, Malik kind of picks up on this this uh that she's coming on quite <laughs> quite strongly. And and it, it is this situation where uh expectations I think for both of them get flipped quite a bit. Like he like he thought he was doing something nice to to make this event for her and she was expecting something else, just something kind of quick, I'm thinking. Um and and yeah, the the it, it starts there, and then she continues to have these conversations with people throughout the play that begin to change the idea around a little bit, that maybe there is something more. She watches her mom, who wants to be a writer. Her mom is, like, writing stories in a notebook throughout the play, and, and she, she cleans an office building, and she has access to computers and copiers and stuff, and she keeps talking to... Annie about how she wants to use the different pieces that are in the building. And and, uh, not only wants to, but she is using them. (laughs) As she cleans the office at night, whenever somebody leaves their computer on, she gets on it. Yeah, yep. And Annie is, like, warning her about that. She sees the, uh, the, the result of her mom having a kid so early. Like she, she, she brings home books and she watches her mom try to read the books and, and her mom can't read the books uh, as, as well as she can. I think, I think our presumption, I don't know that it's ever so explicitly stated, but I think we're supposed to assume that because her mother had a child so young at the time, there wouldn't have been provisions like night school or anything. She probably just had to drop out of school. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it comes down to even even she's she's like saying words wrong, and there's quite a bit of uh, argument around that. Actually, Annie will point out and kind of kind of rub it in a little bit sometimes that her mom is not saying a word correctly, um, or is like using the wrong tense of something. And Annie <laughs> does that to some other characters too. It's kind of an interesting, subtle aspect of her personality. It's not 
it's not overwritten to any degree. It only right. happens a handful of times, and it's moved on from pretty quick. But it says something a little bit about Annie, about her sense of order in the world, about how bright she really is, and about yeah. how she kind of expects that level of brightness from the folks around her. She does it to Talisha at one point. She corrects something small. I think I think Talisha just says something as easy as, like, Talisha says nurseries rhymes instead yeah. of nursery rhymes. And she says, there's no such thing as nurseries rhymes. And Talisha <laughs> has a hilarious clapback. It's like, yo, school ended hours ago. We're not in English class. <laughs> yeah. It's even referred to obliquely once by Talisha because Margie corrects her on something. And Talisha's like, you're not Annie. Stop <laughs> it. <laughs> and they make fun. Both Margie and Talisha make fun of Annie for raising her hand in class. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. That that whole that scene in general kind of shows you the the two worths that the the groups that Annie is a part of holds up. I think Annie uh, wants wants to engage with some of this 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 higher learning. She wants to do other things. She discovered that uh, she that there is more that she could pursue. She feels stuck because she doesn't have like a specialty. There's a really beautiful monologue where she's like, "I just want one thing that I'm good at that would make me stand out." And um, there's just an awesome. Maybe one of my favorite moments in the show occurs around that exact thing. Um, so Malik, in, their, in their first encounter, Malik and Annie in the park, Malik ends up kind of running off. He's not really interested in this kind of aggressive, I just want to hit it and quit it for, you know. <laughs> just, he, he, he becomes very aware. She just wants to get pregnant. She's there to have sex and leave. And there's, we, we learn later why, but it's even very clear in that first scene that she doesn't really know what's supposed to happen or how it works. And it, so that's their first encounter. Then they have another encounter where Annie meets him up on the hill again. And Annie is immediately like, why did you invite me back out here? You don't seem very interested in being with me at all. In fact, I've seen you talking to another girl. What is going on? And Malik says, I saw you in the hallway. And we've had a mention already of a teacher, a really bright, um, in energetic young teacher who is trying to get her students into college. And so she staples college brochures to students whose work is particularly exemplary. And so Malik says that he saw Annie in the hallway get a college brochure stapled on an essay she wrote. And Malik says, you know, I see most people, they just crumple those up and throw them away. But you looked. You you looked through the brochure. I love that. That he <laughs> notices that and that him telling Annie that that's why he, you know, th that is his interest in hers, that he sees in her a desire to better her lot, a desire to, to, to for her to make her life something different. I mean, I find that to be just a brilliantly touching little, little moment to learn about Annie, something we don't get from Annie for a lot of the rest of the show, that particular interest in moving on socially, you know, upwards in terms of her education and her career prospects, we get it through another character's description of her to her. Yeah. To say, no, I know you're better than that. This is what I saw. There's a lot of that in this play, that kind of oblique reference to history, oblique reference to revealing information about other people. And that seems a perfect example of it. You have these two characters who kind of want the same thing. It's just that for some reason, Malik is outside of a group that is pulling him in a different direction. I think Annie's group is pulling her to kind of 
stay here, stay with us, stay with this family that we've created. And, and Malik kind of is this, this, this weird character who offers a different path for a while. Um, but, but mostly just out of his own fervor to try to push for that path. He has, he has this monologue about looking at airplanes. Um, he, he, he loves, he loves, uh, astronomy and, uh, looking at the stars. And he complains that at his house, he can't see the stars because he'll think he sees one. And then all of a sudden it'll start moving. He's like, Oh, it's dang it. It's a plane. Um, <laughs> and, and then he goes into this fairly poetic, uh, description of what he, feels like about those planes and the people behind those planes, how they look down at his life and judge him for where he is. And he wants to ride in a plane um, or, or just be a part of that, that other side of things. Uh, The title of the play comes from this monologue, right? Yeah, that's right. This, this monologue that Malik gives about how he's, he's, he, he imagines that the people in the airplanes look down on him and laugh at him for his particular position in life, that his family is poor. His mother is sick, that the paint is falling off their walls, he says, and we've got milk like sugar on the shelf. Um, and we were talking before the yeah, podcast yeah. that before we read the play, I think both of us assumed the phrase milk like sugar was like a positive metaphor. <laughs> like, yeah. oh, the milk is sweet. It's like sugar. It's no, like sweet it is a milk. very negative metaphor. <laughs> right. Instead of real milk, they have this fakey sugar milk that is like all powdered, they can yeah. get in this area. Yeah, like the, the powdered milk comes in a box and that's what they what they are, are drinking. And that's like, this play has a whole bunch of like landmarks along the way, repeating themes. The, the tattoo parlor is a repeating theme. Uh, the, the nursery rhymes, the house on, uh, oh shoot, I'm forgetting the nursery rhyme. Uh, your yeah, house is on fire and your children will burn. Your house is on fire because your mother wasn't there to watch or something like that. Right, right, right. <laughs> uh, Fly away ladybird, that's what it is. Um and and this is another one this this analogy of of milk that we should be wanting milk rather than this like powdered almost sugar like content this community the the final monologue or the final final scene of the play is him is Malik and Annie I think is the one who actually says this at the end that this community feeds us sugar basically and and tries to get us to stay it, it tries to get us to want the things from this community rather than wanting the actual real milk the you know what what life can truly offer if we get outside of here and and that becomes the kind of rallying call for at least uh for Mal- Malik and uh and possibly for Annie at least halfway through the play that seems to be the way she's moving it's interesting both Malik and Kira who's a character we haven't talked about and I'd like to spend a lot of time talking about Kira here in a minute but maybe as the transition point these two characters have this is I don't know this is kind of a uh, rudimentary way to get at it but they have basically the only scenes in the play that don't have Annie in them between the main dialogue scenes of the play throughout, you get something like this. And, and again, the, the transition between scenes in this script is just stage directions. So one scene ends, there's stage directions, a new scene begins, no break or anything like that. So this is the end of a scene where Kira and Annie are talking. It ends, um, and then the stage directions say, Annie touches her side where the ta- her tattoo is. Malik. Malik looks up at the sky. The sound of an airplane overhead. 
lights up on the tattoo parlor. And then we move into a tattoo parlor scene with the three teenage girls again. So Malik has a scene, an image, a tableau, a something in there where he's looking at the sky in that clearing. Again, later on in the show, we get the same thing for Kira. Annie and Myrna are playing a scene. The scene ends, and then it says Annie stops, Annie smiles. Annie touches her side where her tattoo is. Kira dances as with her radio. Annie watches the tattoo parlor. And that happens, uh, the, the scene with Malik plays a few times, and then there's another kind of tableau image with Kira. And again, I, like I said, I don't know if it's a tableau or they're supposed to play out, how long these are supposed to be. Um, but they have these core images of who they are. Kira dancing to the music of a radio. Malik watching the sky that get inserted between these scenes. I think that's such a fascinating feature. It's almost, I don't know, like I kind of imagine like a slideshow or I don't know. It's so interesting, especially just reading it to imagine what is actually happening on stage right now. I think drawing attention to that unifying uh theatrical element of those two characters is a good thing because they are two characters that have very similar goals but very different tactics as to how to accomplish them. They both want more out of their life. They both know that their life is not necessarily what they want it to be and 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 they both go at trying to fix that by doing two very different things. <laughs> Malik uh, sees his salvation in in learning, in in developing himself, and going to college, and 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 getting out of this neighborhood. Um, Kira sees it at least partially through bettering her life through religion, and she and bettering the lives of her friends through religion. Um, and and that tactic takes her um, down a very different path than Malik, but those goals are still very similar. And, and the way that they interact with Annie structurally is very similar. Again, how the dialogue and the actual tactics of it play out very different between the two because they come from such different places. But actually, but structurally, they both interact in Annie in these kind of touchstone scenes throughout where they try to pull her in a different direction than Talisha and Margie are. Notably, Kira actually listens to Annie, which I feel like is is one big difference between the two of them. Uh, I, I think I think uh, Malik is interested in Annie and, and her thoughts, but he he talks at her quite a lot. Uh, Kira, on the other hand, is kind of becomes a confidant for Annie, which is how she kind of opens the door of like, okay, now that now that we've talked, here's some things you could try. <laughs> There's so, the, you could yeah. So they meet Kira in uh, the hallway. This is a scene, I don't know, shortly after the beginning of the play. We know from the first scene that Talisha gets through school by paying people to write her reports. So then in a later scene, they're in the hallway and Talisha is talking to Kira and she's the one that is going to apparently be paid to uh, to, to write wrote the reports for Talisha. That's how they first interact. And immediately, Kira is is pretty different, Right. Yeah, she sets herself um, out from you would assume what the normal interactions are with these. You know, <laughs> forgive me for the phrase, but these like high school peons to them. Like, <laughs> like she she begins to insert herself into the conversation and offer advice. They're talking about their their pregnancy pact and about having babies, and she begins to insert like helpful advice. Like, oh yeah, my cousins had two kids, and and there's there's a lot of work involved with this, and <laughs> also a really funny line. 
line about how you should really pick who who you decide to have this baby with so that they don't turn out like ugly little Twinkies. Um, <laughs> yeah, the Twinkie joke is pretty funny. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, she she kind of won't let it go. She uh, to Talisha really tries to get her to shut up and she just keeps talking into the conversation and kind of trying to invest in these group of people. And and Kirsten Greenridge has has written uh, the the appearance of Kira to be pretty strikingly different from the three girls too. The stage direction for the beginning of that scene basically says the three girls are kind of at their lockers trying to adjust to make their clothing kind of as as tight and revealing as it can be. And Kira is supposed to be dressed in pretty modest long clothes. You know, you imagine there's a long skirt that they comment on a few times, maybe a sweater. Something that really makes her starkly look different and clearly have different purposes uh, of their school time yeah 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 just for some context i just love the beginning introduction to annie talisha and margie uh this is the first the first stage direction in the play and as far as their appearance goes a tattoo parlor annie talisha nails like talons lacquered bejeweled and bedazzled and margie bubbly dressed in all one bright color so <laughs> so that that contrast is is what Kira steps into. This this uh, this definitely this this person who claims the other status steps into the group and Annie kind of gravitates toward her a little bit. She rankles at some of the treatment Talisha the 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 how, how Talisha treats her um as kind of this 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 plebe um <laughs> yeah talisha's a pretty aggressive character she she's harsh and mean at a lot of different times and annie pretty regularly balks at that particular behavior on talisha's part so then when it when it's applied to kira annie kind of stands up for kira a little bit we get the sense that there's some sort of interaction that that annie has had with kira earlier that has maybe set her up to be sympathetic um but mm-hmm. this is the first one we get to see yeah, some sort of some sort of history between the two. And that begins to turn into especially as the crux of the issue becomes uh uh that Annie is the last one. We find out uh in I don't know, scene 5, the scenes are hard in this play. Um that Talisha has gotten pregnant. Uh that she's taken a pregnancy test and she's gotten pregnant. So Annie is the last one who has not gotten pregnant yet. So as this tension begins to rise between the friends, she Which, ends up- I, I mean, again, this is just commentary on, on the scope of the play. Like, <laughs> these, these three teenage girls are pretty ignorant about what all this <laughs> takes, right? And Annie actually brings that up. Talisha's like, boom, I got pregnant. And Annie's like, didn't we just come up with this plan yesterday? <laughs> what do you mean you're pregnant already? <laughs> <laughs> yep. <laughs> yep. And of it's course, a- Talisha's not pregnant because of the pact. She right. just got pregnant, and yep. it happened to be right now, and she happened to discover that morning that she was pregnant. She didn't just get pregnant and figure it out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, things are moving fast for this group, and 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 you can see that in Annie's reaction. She, I mean, she begins to kind of put the brakes on and kind of like wonder, what, what are we doing? Hold on, we got to think about this through, and Kira becomes a confidant for her within the context of that, because she she, she needs an outside perspective. She can't get it at home, so she kind of creates some trust with this other friend. And different than Malik, 
or maybe we we could this might be an interesting point of conversation. I'm it'd be interested to see what you think. I would think I would say different than Malik, Annie seems almost immediately attracted to the different life that Kira offers. Kira, as soon as the other girls leave in that first scene in, in the high school hallway, Kira basically says, you know, look, it's not in my business, but I kind of think a family should be something you plan and you build carefully and you love. And it seems like you and your friends are kind of patchworking a family together. I'm not sure how healthy that is. And she begins to talk about it in more religious language. And she uses that old phrase, you know, I have a more excellent way. She talks about her dad and the way that their family has dinner every night together and loves each other. And and then she goes into this whole imagery about how maybe we weren't meant to wear sneakers. We're meant to wear these white satin slippers because our souls are too pure for these sneakers. They burn us up. And and it the the crux language that, that becomes important through the rest of the play is this idea of I have a more excellent way. And Annie seems fairly taken up by that idea that there's a different way almost right away in her interaction with Kira. Her interaction with Malik didn't go that smoothly, I don't think. Yeah, I wonder if it's something to do with the progression of it because the the conversation with Malik happens a little bit earlier. So there could be kind of a softening of, of the ground as far as that thought is concerned, that the kind of you're worth more thought has been slowly building throughout this play. Um, but I think also what ends up I, one one of the big things that ends up happening is Kira actually gets her to an act part of it, something that uh, that M- Malik never got her to do. When she when he when Malik tries to get her to look through the telescope, she won't do it. She to the point that she shoves it back at him and, and breaks the telescope. It's how their second interaction ends. Is is she breaks it? There's a a bit of a altercation and then he storms off. Kira manages to get her to dance in one of in one of the uh, more stunning physical scenes of this play. Uh, uh, Kira starts pulls out like a hand radio and uh, starts a gospel station playing and kind of gives Annie the chance to engage physically in in this thought process and 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 live something out rather than just kind of think about it. Absolutely. And the radio is one of those first clues that it's it's especially easy to recognize when you know where it's going, but at the time doesn't always seem that odd. But the clues are there as the play goes on about where Kira actually is. There's a fairly major reveal that for all Kira's talk about this loving family that sits down to dinner every night and plays Yahtzee and has game nights and her father who takes her to these dances every year and this sort of pure, beautiful family, Kira doesn't have that at all. Mm-hmm. You kind of see the uh, each time we move towards something in an idealistic manner, it's kind of chopped back down in this play. Um, you, you uh, Annie has kind of set Kira up as this ideal family. She pitches to her mom, Myrna, this idea of having a family game night because Kira has said, my family sits down and we eat food together, all the good foods that you're supposed to eat, and we have game nights and we play together, and this is this is how family is supposed to be. And uh, and so she, she brings this idea to her mom, Annie brings this idea to her mom, and so she's kind of committed to this idea, but one of the nights that she calls Kira kind of late to confide in her, Kira like asks to meet on a street corner rather than at her home. And 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 there's this 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 kind of back and forth where 
we discover through Annie's questioning that Kira's home life is not what she has described, at least right now. Her dad is not there. He is in prison. And she goes and visits him. Her mom gambles away her paycheck every week. And and she does this work so that she does like all this, this interaction with people, at least partially, because her church, her pastor, is kind of encouraging her to you know, go and do the good work and you'll get some reward for it. Yeah, that was, I, I, I don't know, that that reveal of, it's not falsity because Kira does believe the things that she says and, and is passionate about them, but she's definitely been lying about what her home life is really like, about this pure, beautiful, imagined family that it's perfect in every way. And that was, I don't know, that was really hard for me to read. I, I think I became, especially the first time I read it, obviously the second time I knew where it was going, but in, in the very first time I read through the play, I became really invested and I was just really touched by the character of Kira and the, the gentleness and the sincerity and the empathy with which the playwright treated this, this example of, uh, of evangelism. Uh, you know, that, that is not always treated so delicately and subtly. And not that the character is, but the writing of it is. One great, great line that's an example of this is um, Kira and Annie are talking at Annie's home. And Kira's talking about her aunt who doesn't come to church with them. And she says, she doesn't come with me, with us, which is a sad thing, if you ask me. My church got beautiful things to say. Mm-hmm. I just loved that line as I as I was experiencing my church got beautiful things to say. Yeah. And yeah. then to discover later on that it's kind of all built on this lie or this imagined reality instead of this true reality. Right. It's it's a rough realization and and it's one that you don't get much closure from either. There isn't a reconciliation scene with Kira. It's the it's the last interaction that we have with Kira in the play. Um so so yeah, it's it's one of those rough things. I I think it's it's one of those choices that a playwright makes uh out of out of it feels like a lived scenario. Like this dramatically it it's a hard beat dramatically. Um and and this this but it, I think it feels really honest in that. Kira has this great monologue where she says, I deserve to have a nice meal sometimes. And the pastor invites me over to have a nice meal occasionally. So she's taking care of that relationship so that she can eat a meal with silverware rather than by herself at home. So that, 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 uh, that worth, that goal of hers becomes <laughs> the paramount, uh, what she is doing all these actions for. Again, a, a hard scene to kind of realize that maybe she's been lying this whole time. Well, and and all of these characters around Annie have this core thing, which is what they imagine will lift them out of the hard conditions around them. And all of their lives are hard for different reasons. Uh, you know, Mirna, Annie's mother's life is hard because she has this, dead-end job that's not going to get her anywhere. And and she feels like she left behind the chance to do something she really liked to do, to, to write stories. Uh, Malik's life is hard because his mother is sick. 
you know, uh, Kira's life is hard because her father's in prison and her mother gambles away her paycheck. These other girls, Talisha's life is hard. She's in an abusive relationship. Margie is pregnant as a high schooler. They all have these things around them and they all have things which they imagine will lift them out of that suffering. For Talisha and Margie, there's this idea that maybe having a baby will lift me out of this suffering. For Mirna, there's this idea that if I can be on the computer for a set amount of time and use the copier for a set amount of time, I can get my stories published and then that'll lift me out. Malik says, if I can go to college, that will lift me out. And Kira, heartbreakingly, I think, says, if I can be good enough, a good enough person, a righteous enough soldier for the Lord. If I can bring people to God and, and show how pure my spirit is, that, that sneakers burn my soul, I'm so pure. That's going <laughs> to lift me out of this suffering around me. And man, that's heartbreaking to hear. Mm-hmm. I mean, to, it, yeah, I think for me, probably just because I'm religious, that particular outlook on life, this idea that I can be good enough to lift myself out is it's it's kind of heartbreaking yeah i mean it's yeah an uphill battle for a character to try to to try to live into for anyone to try to live into so so what is the you you mentioned what what all these people are kind of holding up uh as as what they're trying trying to pursue to find their way out of where they're at what is what does annie end up doing i like what what is her pursuit that she latches onto some of this place she's in flux right it's kind of the war between a bunch of characters as to which way she'll pick and 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 what do you think what is she, what does she end up picking in this play man i don't know i'm i'm not sure oh man this is this is i don't know should i say this <laughs> <laughs> i am not sure that she actually makes a strong choice hmm, about yeah. where to go Let's let's talk through what actually happens over the course. So the character we haven't talked a lot about is Antoine, who's the tattoo artist. Yeah, um, she goes back to the shop several times uh, to continually get her tattoo expanded. That's one of the images of the play: this expanding fire tattoo on her torso. And um, Antoine, we learn more about Antoine every time we go back. He's and he's a real artist of the tattoo artist community. Um, he he's not allowed to uh, uh, do tattoos for real paying customers for some reason. We don't know why for a lot of the play. Uh, and and uh, anyway, eventually their interactions have kind of been borderline flirtatious. Um, but Annie goes back in the in the crux scene of the play to she she's. There, I think I don't know exactly if this is what she really thinks is going to happen, but she's she's there asking Antoine to expand the fire tattoo to cover her whole body from head to toe. Yeah, yeah, she she's had this repeating relationship with with Antoine throughout the play, but notably for throughout the play, she's there with her friends. Uh, Margie and Talisha are there with her. This final scene where she comes and asks him to expand the tattoo over her whole body, um, it's just her. It's just her there with him. And it's uh yeah, the scene the scene develops. We 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 talk back and forth between them and and eventually they end up together for the evening. Yeah, they they sleep together and that is that gets Annie pregnant. I mean that 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 that's the last scene of the timeline events of the show and then the final scene is a flash forward several months down the road near the end of the school year. Uh, Annie is up to see Malik again kind of to say goodbye as he's he's headed off and we see that she's pregnant and she 
gets to look through at the stars finally, which she hasn't done through the course of interaction with Malik. She actually looks at the stars and looks up, and but she's visibly pregnant, presumably from this interaction with Antoine. Right. Yeah. So so throughout the play, you have this this recurring relationship between them, and I don't know. Does that constitute a choice at the end? What do you think? The, this 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 like. She ends up with Antoine. It's it's messy. <laughs> it's very messy. And throughout the play, her friends, Talisha and Margie, have been joking with her. Depends on how serious, I suppose, you want to imagine they actually are. Like, oh, you could be with the tattoo guy. Look, he's kind of cute. Uh, you know, you might as well be with him if you're not going to be with Malik. So there's some setup there, and there's some stage directions that kind of give some hints about what, exactly how you're supposed to do. Like, I think at one point it says... Uh, they look at each other and there's something more in the look or something like that. You know, sort of subtle setup things. But it is, I think, why Annie goes to the tattoo parlor informs a lot of what kind of a decision she's making. She goes after she has discovered that Kira's life is not anything like Kira has claimed it to be, that for all of this, there is a better way that Annie's been drawn up into and and has believed that maybe this is what's going to help get her out. Kira's life is no better than hers, maybe even worse. And then she goes home and Myrna's been fired from her job because she got caught on the computers and that has ruined their, any chance at having this family dinner and game night that that Annie's been so excited about. So after all of this falling through, everything she's been trying to build to get herself out of this pregnancy pack, imagine a different way for her life, all of that has fallen through. The stage direction simply says, lights rise on the tattoo parlor, Antoine works, draws, looks up to see Annie, and Annie says, bigger, for real. Why is she actually there, though? Surely she can't be there thinking she's going to get a fire tattoo from her head to her feet. <laughs> yeah, I I think that that's that's I, there's there's a symbolism in this in this play of the tattoo that my mind is like poking at that I can't quite nail down. But this 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 expanding of the tattoo always with Antoine, always in the context of the scene, and then the ask at the end for it to kind of spread. She wants it over her whole body, but then the last kind of beats before they the scene cuts to the future is them kind of using this language around the fire of the tattoo to describe their, their growing desire for each other in that scene. Um, it's... There's, 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 there's... There's like... Uh, <laughs> to borrow from from the 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 pl- the play that we'll be talking about next month in Magic Month into the woods, the decision not to decide perhaps <laughs> <laughs> is is somewhere in here, or the decision just to to move forward with something. Because I think you're right. This play um, hints that this relationship is something more than just a tattoo artist throughout this play, and for some reason, and I don't know if it's just my perspective, but for some reason throughout the play, Antoine seems like this this character who is this kind of 
good soul. <laughs> you know, uh, he spends time talking. He says he talks too much. He shares too much of himself in these tattoo sessions, which is part of the reason why he he can't uh, he can't work for his cousin as a t- tattoo artist because he talks too much. The other reason is because he's an artist. He likes to kind of he has this like really beautiful language around painting pictures on people's bodies and giving them something new to look at and be a, and inform their life. And yeah, so he and, has and he's, this. He's kind of set up as a different kind of character in that very first scene. Talisha and Margie are kind of making fun of Annie for her choice of tattoo. And so when Antoine actually shows up, they say, hey, don't you think that's a dumb choice? Shouldn't she get something different? And his first thing right away is it's her choice. She should get what she wants. Right. Immediately separating himself from the pack a little bit in terms of his good soulness. Yeah. And yet this play doesn't give us like a nice it doesn't it does doesn't give us a bowed ending to that, right? It's it's not a scene at the end where uh, Annie and Antoine are having a conversation around her being pregnant. In fact, while they are moving towards sleeping together, he says, I can't be anyone's boyfriend right now. Do you, do you, do you get that? I can't, we, I can't do this. Do you know what you're getting into? And, and it's this, this back and forth between Not them. Not to the mention last... that I'm pretty sure he's a lot older than her. Assumedly. <laughs> I yeah. think we have to just be willing to set that aside. I don't know. She's 16. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, so, so it's it's not it's not easy at the end, but something about this choice from Annie seems like seems like just that a choice, a move in a direction for her. It doesn't seem like something that she's being pulled to do. Well, I think where the choice happens is is the crucial point. Is she showing up at that tattoo parlor? for something else and just get swept up in the romance or the flirting and then that leads her to sleep with Antoine or does she show up at the tattoo parlor to sleep with Antoine? Mm-hmm. Right? I mean, where has she made a decision or it, it doesn't even have to be that she's made the decision to do it before she gets there but is that why she's there ultimately? Is that in the back of her mind from the beginning or does she end up not really making a choice? Does she end up not really having any agency and being sort of swept along? And not to say that she didn't consent or anything like that. Although, again, she's 16. 16 so <laughs> Legally, I don't think she can consent. Right. <laughs> yeah, but no, let's, like, uh, let's I guess let's set that aside. Let's set that aside for now. Um, <laughs> it's a little bit uncomfortable. <laughs> yeah. But I think you're right that that choice will will greatly flavor the the ending of the play. I I don't I don't know though. I don't know that either way um what where she is at the end. Um it's it's kind of a a knee-jerk reaction at or it feels like the pit falls out of the bottom of your stomach at the end of the play. She's she kind of stands up and reveals as the last beat of the play that she is pregnant. And you you realize that over the what she has kind of fought against for the middle of the play still happened as a result as a result of whatever choice she made. 
it, it it's telling, I think, that almost right away, as soon as she shows up at the tattoo parlor, she immediately begins this line of questioning that seems as if she's prepared to have this conversation. Did you always know you wanted to draw, Antoine? And that leads her into a, a discussion that you've mentioned before, which is this idea that she likes the fact that he's an artist because it seems like something he could get himself out of this situation in. She says, the only calls I got on my birthday that night I got my tattoo was some punk ass boy who didn't really who doesn't really have a ticket out either i he thinks he does but he's stuck like the rest of us not you you draw that could take you out of here i don't know if there's a sense almost that the the idea that malik has any way out has fallen through the idea that kira has any way out has fallen through the idea that mirna has any way out has fallen through and through the course of the play annie's become disillusioned with the idea that a baby is her way out of the the pain and so she comes as if there's no one else to Antoine, who seems like an artist maybe this maybe he's got the answer and even he reveals no, I, I, I'm failing at this too. I'm not allowed to be a real tattoo artist because when I tried to do this tattoo for this guy, I ended up injuring him and really mangling the whole picture because I couldn't control <laughs> myself and what I wanted, the art that I wanted to do. Yeah, yeah, it's a, it's kind of a in in a in a, in a rapidly boiling uh, situation. It's kind of a funny story in the middle of it all. He was supposed to do this tiny little ship, and he covered his body in in a, <laughs> in like waves and a and a, and a large ship. So, I I, I agree. I, I I like she's she's literally gone to everyone in her life that we have met. Um, with the exception of maybe the this this one teacher that we hear about. Um. To, oh, to try to find a way teacher. out. Yeah. The teacher. I know we only have a little bit of time left and we're probably going to end up leaving this conversation a little mm-hmm. bit unfinished because honestly, I don't, I don't have a lot more insight on this conversation. Yeah. This, the play this feels is, unfinished. I think it does. And in a, and in a positive way, and right. not in a, uh, not in a way that I feel like the playwright has missed something, but in a way that it feels like part of the play is a question to the audience to ponder to examine and to figure out. But I do want to, the, the teacher thing is just woof. Yeah. Is, is yep. I think some really barbed in, intentionally and beautifully barbed insight into education. Yeah. There's, there's some, and it's all again, like this play does a beautiful job at obliquely referring to things and getting your mind to trigger into something, um, without actually whacking you over the head with it. Um, but there's, there's more than one instance where I believe it's Dr. Fitzgerald is brought up this, this new teacher. She's the the teacher that had been handing out college brochures that everybody seemed really impressed with that. She really wanted to help get these kids to a better life. Uh, But at the very last scene of the play, this flash forward between Malik and Annie. Yeah, well, uh, uh, Malik ends up saying, revealing that they had left already, that she (laughs) she had moved on to another job and just kind of used it as a stepping stool and had had left them again. And and he says kind of quickly, I I don't know if you have it in front of you, but the the, the, something about how it's uh, he has cutting words for how quickly these people leave these students who they give dreams to. Annie says the good teachers always run out. Malik says could stay if they really wanted. Forget about the children. They should leave one or two teachers behind. Teach Johnny to read and write and add before he gets into trouble. She should have stayed. All's I mean. Don't you think she should have stayed? Yeah, that's a <laughs> yikes. That's a yeah, hard that's thing. A, that's a. I think that's a really pointed, painful 
brutally honest insight. I mean, we don't often think about the children that are left behind when these amazing teachers leave and and nothing against the amazing teachers either Malik takes a harsh look at them but look it's it's tough to teach for no money in a in a hard school in a hard district you know and right. they that's just the way the education system has, has failed kids and it, I, I, that that insight at the end man has felt felt really real and really raw to me that type of insight throughout this play is i think what it is it's it's an opportunity to look at something really real really raw and not get an ending for it. And, and for you, I think this play is intention. It is intentionally set in, in, in nowhere. Um, it's, it's not a, it doesn't firmly give you a town. It's not New York. It's not Baltimore or something like that. This is just, this is a town. Um, it could be anywhere. <laughs> this happens everywhere. And, and so, so it, it calls you to action, um, in its openness in its unsolvedness where it, where it ends in this play. Yeah, and the final images of Annie finally looking at the sky, something that Malik has kind of been challenging her to do, look up, as if, and for you know, for Malik, the image there is that looking up is kind of his way out. He's hoping that his interest in astronomy will help get him into college. He's got this long-running idea that people that are up there are laughing at him, and so he's encouraging her to look beyond that into a, I don't know, a different or a better future. And and she's revealed that she's pregnant there just in that final image as she's finally looking looking at the sky yeah yeah fine yeah finally after all this time even though even, even though she has fought against being pregnant she's pregnant now and that maybe that kind of freedom has let her look to the sky and it, yeah it's it's all messy but tell you what if you have wisdom as to what it could mean you should let us know we're wrapping up it's about at the end of our time and and we'd love to keep having this conversation because this play is beautiful there are facets that we didn't get to talk about like the tech elements in this play it is a a um a <laughs> challenging play for tech elements. There is uh, cell phones going off all the time. There is, uh, you know, fire effects. The transitions between scenes that we obliquely mentioned um, are quite powerful. Um, there's like fire and wind effects and all sorts of things going on. So there's And we didn't talk much about the cell phones either. The cell right. phone usage and what the what a cell phone looks like and what type it is is a important image <laughs> yeah. through the play. And it's a status That's one of the symbol. great, great things and and uh, sometimes frustrating things about freewheeling conversation is <laughs> yeah. we didn't talk about that. <laughs> Shoot. That's a great point of conversation. If you read this play, you should talk about the yeah. cell phones and the imagery of cell phones. If you like this conversation or some of our other conversations, please share it on your social media. Tell people about it. Our community is awesome and growing, and we need your help to help it keep growing. You can find us on Podbean, on Apple Podcasts, on Google Play, or on Spotify. Yeah, yeah. And find us on all the social medias, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. No Script Podcast is the username for that. We also have a Gmail, no Script Podcast at gmail.com. Find us on all those, continue the conversation, and look on those sites for us to post the list of plays again. And uh, look for the Plays for Magic Month. Magic, Magic Month, month starts next week. Yeah, I'm so yeah. excited. I love yeah. these theme months. Uh, and I love all four of these scripts I'm excited to talk about, too. So looking looking forward to those a lot. Yeah, me too. We got a, we got a good mix coming. It's fun to talk about Shakespeare, uh, which we'll kick off with next week. But until then, I'm Jackson Nikolai. I'm Jacob Mann Christensen. Thanks for listening to No Script. Bye.